and welcome to Joe's Boys, a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now and a freelance journalist with bylines in Pitchfork, Billboard, and Vanity Fair. This week, our very special guest is Jaya Saxena. She is the senior writer at Eater.com. Her writing has appeared in GQ, L, The New York Times, a gazillion other places. She's the co-author of Dad Magazine, the author of the Book of Lost Recipes, co-author of Basic Witches, author of the essay collection Crystal Clear. Welcome to the show, Jaya. I'm starstruck. How are you? <laughs> Dayton, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and talk about this chapter. This is going to be so much fun. I'm thrilled that you're here because this one is a nightmare. <laughs> 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 There's a lot going on. Um, but before we get into all that, what's your relationship to little women? So I, I'm slightly embarrassed, but I, I told you this when you first asked me to be on the show that I I had actually never read Little Women. I don't know how I missed it, but these things happen. And I similarly missed the, the 90s adaptations, missed any adaptation until the most recent one, which I loved and sobbed my way through and found that so warm and so beautiful. So now I am completely on board with little women, thrilled about thinking about it, trying to think of how many times I can slip the phrase my little women into (laughs) this podcast. Very much a beginner, very much someone who Literally before I saw the most recent adaptation, I was under the impression that this book took place in England. That's how (laughs) far away I was. That's how bad I was at this. (laughs) I don't know. Emma Watson's accent took place in England. (laughs) It very much did. That's true. I try to be contented, but it is hard. And I'm tired of being poor. (laughs) There's part of my brain that any book that takes place before 1900, I'm just like, well, that was in England, right? Surely nothing (laughs) happened in America. (laughs) England was the only country that existed before 1900. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You read the chapter that we're talking about and you know your March sisters. So which March sister would you say that you are? And again, for the purposes of this podcast, Lori is a once and forever. Lori is a Marxist. Marxist. It is hard to figure out. Our mutual friend, James Frankie, had rated me long ago as Meg. And I think that is just because at the time I identified as a straight woman who got (laughs) married earlier than the rest of our friends and that I was the older one among our friend groups. So I think I naturally slotted into a Meg category and I certainly can be somewhat of a know-it-all. So that makes (laughs) sense, but it's hard to tell. I think I think in a lot of ways too, I can be a Beth. I think I can be sort of emotional and fragile and hopefully don't die early. But but I think there is part of me that can be very quiet, very secluded, but I don't know, elements of them all. I mean, that's a cop-out answer, but maybe just for the purposes of got married young, (laughs) a Meg. No, I can see that. You can be the Meg Beth Cusp. We're going to be leaning into Meg heavy today. This is an extremely Meg-centric chapter. Do you want to give us a quick rundown of what happens in chapter? Chapter nine, Meg goes to Vanity Fair. What happens is this chapter is that Meg goes to a party and decides that she's never going to want anything again. <laughs> <laughs> Meg goes to the party, gets punished for being a woman, 
Yeah. <laughs> and then sent home and is like, they were right to punish me. Basically, she is sent away to this party from these family friends who are all much richer than the marches and decide that Meg is going to be their little pet and that they're going to dress her up and put makeup on her, but the, all in sort of a pitying, sad way of like, oh, this poor girl in her one dress and her muslin. She only has one ribbon. Isn't that the saddest thing you've ever heard? And she lets them do this. She's at this ball and feeling slightly silly, but also having a fun time. And then Lori shows up and is basically like, no, you are being really silly. This is ridiculous. How dare you? And then she goes home and talks to her mom and Joe and is like, no, it was terrible. I was so silly. I was so stupid. I'll never feel good again. Everyone was right to say that this was wrong for me to want. <laughs> I agree with your assessment that this is a hard one to make heads or tail of. Yeah, I read through it this morning because I just wanted it absolutely fresh in my mind. And the thing is, reading it, you get a whiplash because the characters' intentions and motivations and understanding of what's going on around them seems to change from paragraph to paragraph. Absolutely. Lori will apologize and then five seconds later be slut shaming Meg. <laughs> <laughs> right. And he's the one who sends her the flowers and he's the one who enables this in some way of her to be dressing up and being beautiful. And he's also very rich and then shows up and is like, no, it's too much frill and fuss. What's wrong with you? How dare you be enjoying yourself? <laughs> And says, I don't care for frills and feathers. And then five seconds later is admiring her French silk boots. Lori, whose team are you on here? <laughs> What's going on? And then as if that wasn't enough, there's this other thread where Meg overhears someone saying that she must be scheming to marry Lori and take all his money away. She brings this news back home. And then Marmy gives them a little lecture, a very conservative lecture saying something yeah. along the lines of, to be loved and chosen by a good man is the best and sweetest thing which can happen to a woman, which we know damn well that Lou Alcott did not. No. <laughs> Maybe this was a very heavily edited chapter. Maybe this was one of those things where Alcott was just like, fine, fuck it. I'll throw everyone else a bone and do something that I didn't really want to do here. Because when Marmy said that, it certainly sounds very hypothetical. I do not think that is her saying, I want one of you to marry Lori. And it certainly sounds like honest about the time, but it's so hard to, to really get a sense. And especially if we're talking about queer and trans under or overtones, every time I tried to map some aspect of queer narrative onto this, I felt like it just wasn't sticking because there are all these things of like, oh, okay. So here she is longing to be a part of this other world. And then she has this opportunity to go and actually participate in it. And I'm like, okay, very relatable to the queer experience that you're, you're on the outside looking in, you're wondering what it's like to live this life. And suddenly you, you get your first chance, even if it is a slightly artificial chance. And you're like, wait, yes, this is it. This feels so good. Except then, right. She gets there and is not necessarily feeling good about it or isn't letting herself feel good about it because she's feeling so much extant shame from her family and her community about this, that it would be impossible for her to feel good about it, which I guess can be very relatable to the queer experience, but it's really thorny. <laughs> it is 
a whole rose bush. It's extremely thorny. <laughs> like, I think parts of Meg's discomfort clearly come from class and from worrying about appearing shabby or then worrying about appearing tacky. When that comes through very clearly, it works. Sometimes Meg is just not comfortable. The shoes are pinching. She can't breathe in the stays. And that all works. From reading Lou Alcott's letters and journals, obviously this was a person who really had a very deep longing to be a man who thought that yeah. they should have been born a boy. And unfortunately... Sometimes that does come out in just, there's no other word for it, just misogyny. Yes. Yeah. She'll make comments <laughs> about frilly, frivolous dresses and bonnets. Often May Alcott, who was the real life Amy, get the brunt of that in private mm. letters and journals, right? There'll be occasions where she's in a group with other women and she talks about them clucking and clacking and gossiping. And so yeah. I, I think that unfortunately might be a dimension of what we're seeing here. When I had my little notes about this, I think one sentence I had was that this chapter seems like the distillation of what Alcott thinks of femininity. And that that is not necessarily a positive thing. And that Meg is silly for wanting this. And Meg is silly for thinking that anyone should. And I know that this shows up later with anytime Meg wants something greater than what her life has given her, she sort of gets a little shamed and a little punished for it. And that absolutely makes it sound like, no, this was Alcott's idea of what femininity was, that it was all frills and feathers. It was all this extraneous stuff that no one actually needed. I feel like that is the main takeaway that I got from this. It was more just an opportunity to talk about how ridiculous femininity is. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It gets really, really rank when it gets intense. She's setting up a situation, it seems, where Meg just cannot win. Yeah. Like when she goes to the party in her old poplin, people are whispering about how shabby she looks. When she goes all dolled up, people are making really slut shamey comments about her. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. She's like, oh, I wish I had just borne my shame and worn the shabby dress. Right. Exactly. <laughs> that femininity is somehow at odds with nobility or intention or honesty or any of these sorts of things that the March family values and that she comes home and just finally tells Joe and then her mom, I was wrong to go and not even I was wrong to go, but I was wrong to want to go. Now I have learned my lesson and I will never think of such frivolous things again. And all silks are hateful to me. (laughs) (laughs) I can totally tell that if you're someone who were trans or gender non-conforming, trans mask, any, however we want to interpret that, felt like this femininity was forced on you. This would absolutely be her reaction, but it was like, I don't know, damn, man. Yeah. (laughs) This is intense. I think I'd give Alcott more latitude if this had been about Joe getting Mm -hmm. forced into a dress and spun through this fancy world and hating every minute of it. But that's not what this is. No, exactly. This is a character who presumably embraces aspects of femininity and enjoys it and for whom this isn't a problem. Yeah. Even Lori, who is a character who in other chapters we've talked about as, you know, being even potentially trans feminine, being very interested in womanhood and femininity and flowers, right? Is like the man police here. Yes. (laughs) He's just mean. (laughs) Not Lori's best moment, I have to say. Let's just start from the beginning and just trace this roller coaster. So we start off, Meg is packing a trunk, going off to spend some time with Annie Moffat, presumably in Boston. So she's going to have a little high society moment. Um, City weekend. (laughs) Big city weekend, hot girl, spring break, you know. (laughs) 
Joe, Beth, and Amy are all in agreement that this is going to be the best time ever. They're all helping her pack. Joe is even very excited. She says a whole fortnight of fun will be regularly splendid. There is no notion of judgment or shame. Yeah, from the outset. Right. I remember Joe even offering her bracelet, except she's like, except I broke it. But like (laughs) everyone wanting to give Meg anything pretty that they have to help her on this journey. (laughs) Mrs. March has gotten out the treasure box. She's gotten out a pretty fan. She's gotten a sash, silk stockings from what little genuinely nice things that they have have all been broken out for Meg. Joe is, I could offer you my feminine things, but I've destroyed all of them, which is... It's a recurring theme. She's smashed her coral bracelet. She has a doll that she tore the head and limbs off of. So now Beth just takes around the headless and limbless torso. <laughs> this doll. It's just a repetition of this theme of Joe just eviscerating anything feminine that comes within a tiny radius of her. Right? Yeah. 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 And there is some understanding of Meg knowing that her stuff isn't the best stuff, but it will have to do. Mm-hmm. And it's not the end of the world. She is dreadfully disappointed in the umbrella. It's a green one with an ugly yellowish handle, but she's not going to complain, right? She's just going to make do. Yeah. And the Marches are living in a fictionalized Concord, Massachusetts, which was several hours from Boston. It was not the big city by any means. Mm -hmm. It was a much smaller community. So there wasn't as much pressure even on local social gatherings to look nice, be the best. Yeah, no, it's very different. Yeah, no. So she's wearing tarlatan. She's wearing poplin. These are plain weave fabrics noted for their stiffness. They're not fancy high society fabrics here, right? So Meg is just making the best of it, but still very, very excited. She's departed in style. She's cheered up. She has a real understanding of where she's sitting socially and financially, but still very much looking forward to this. And then she goes to the Moffat's house and it's an entirely different world. It is. Yeah. Alcott throws some shade here. She says that the Moffats were not particularly cultivated or intelligent people. <laughs> yes. And I feel like that was yeah. such a, we're talking about ideas of femininity that feels like so part of it where it's like mm-hmm. the marches are maybe poorer or dowdier or something, mm-hmm. but they're smart. They have values. They have morals. They know who they are. They have conviction. And here are all these people who all they care about is fashion and makeup and gossip and they're people of no substance and it's talking about the Moffat family but I think that very much sounds like women as a whole all you care about is gossip and yeah really we don't hear much about any Moffat men mm-hmm. she's really spending her time in the social world of the Moffat women and using French phrases mm-hmm. which throughout Little Women the French language and French people are shorthand for decadence and superficiality yes <laughs> in contrast to this American meat and potatoes virtue. Yeah. (laughs) Certainly coming through here. The first inkling creeps in of Meg being envious and sighing to be rich and her home looking bare and dismal. She felt that she was a very destitute and much injured girl. It's really coming through even before she gets to that party, right? That she is just worlds away from these people and really feeling inferior. Yeah. Yeah. So gender and class collapse into one thing here. Yeah, absolutely. And trying to think of general queer narrative. There was part of me that was thinking about maybe that moment when you first come out and you're still figuring out the contours of your queerness and you're looking around
around and it can be very intimidating because you're like, oh my God, wait, is this what it means? Because if that's what it means, I don't necessarily think I want that version of it, but does that mean I'm not this at all? At the beginning, there was some of that going on where she's like, wait a second, I want to be part of this. There's a lot of this that I like, but I'm also feeling really embarrassed. I'm also feeling really different. I'm feeling put out, but it seemed like there was room for it to reconcile of being, maybe I am not like this specific group, but there are things I found that I valued in this encounter that I will take with me and add to my sense of self in the future. And at the beginning, you know, I sort of thought that that's more where it was going to go instead of it just being like a wholehearted rejection of anything she just experienced. (laughs) No, it's, this is probably the most misogynist point of the novel. (laughs) both in, in what she's directing at the Moffats and what she's directing at Meg. Right, because there's that whole bit where they also start calling her a different name. They start calling her Daisy. And it's very much like, you're going to be Daisy and let me dress you up and give you this dress and put lipstick on you. She's like this little doll. I was like, ooh, Meg now going by Daisy. And I'm like, this is the least queer, least trans thing of all. Like, this is not no. what this is doing. <laughs> no, they're force fending her. Yeah, (laughs) because you mentioned it, the Daisy stuff goes so deep. I'm going to explain it to you. You're going to feel like you're falling down a flight of stairs. Oh my God, please, please. (laughs) Meg's full first name, Margaret, Mm -hmm. derives from the French word for Daisy, Marguerite, hence the nickname. But Marguerite is also a form of Gretchen. (gasps) Oh my God. (laughs) Which Algot loved Faust. So it's a total... (laughs) Oh, damn. This is exactly what is... Oh my God. really <laughs> she's really letting meg have it what did meg do to you this is what did meg do to you in a very real sense what meg did to lou alcott in real life was settle far more comfortably into womanhood and femininity and motherhood and wifedom than lou could ever imagine doing yeah Absolutely. (laughs) Having certainly skimmed through the rest of the book, but again, having having seen the movie and having remember the scene where Meg does get married and Joe is sitting there begging her, what's wrong with you? How could you want this? This is insane. And Meg just being like, sometimes people just want this. Get over it. But it really, it really seems like Alcott here just maybe really trying to reckon with, I guess this is what some people want. And then immediately being like, nope, not at all. This is ridiculous. <laughs> no, Marmy is giving the lecture about marriage and Joe's like, mm-hmm. well, you know, nothing wrong with being an old maid. Yeah. <laughs> Would love a spinster moment. <laughs> Very vocal about that, right? Oh my like, God. Alcott was sort of anti-marriage period. Mm-hmm. both in this and in her other work and in her private life, almost a proto-feminist stance against marriage, which came from seeing the, really the hell that her father put her mother through. Mm-hmm. Not that he was abusive in any way, but just Bronson Alcott, we can't diagnose people in history, but he grappled with suicidal ideation, depression. There were times when he was just simply unable to hold a job long enough to provide for the family. So Abba Alcott was the one who had to really pick up the slack and put food yeah. on the table. So even in Marmy's speech, there's a reference here to being wisely married, wink, wink, which is if you're going to make a match, make sure that you're not going to be struggling 
yeah. to put food on the table or feed your kid. In a very real sense, I think that's what it came from. We get the first hint here of romance in the book when Laurie sends some flowers from his greenhouse to Meg. In the past, this has been Laurie's way of expressing friendship. He seems to be like a real floral hobbyist. So <laughs> we understand this as a sweet cheer up gesture. There's a note included from Marmy. It really cheers Meg up. She starts making little bouquets for her friends. She uses this to adorn her own little shabby poplin, right? Mm -hmm. But as she's going to the party that evening in her shabby little gown, right, she happens to overhear some gossip. People saying that the Marches are very intimate with the Lawrences and Mrs. March has laid her plans well and will play her cards well. And another person thinks that Meg was fibbing about the note being from her mother. It must actually have been Lori. Meg and Lori must be lovers. Yeah. This is all bookended by poor thing. She'd be so nice if she was only got up in style. Do you think she'd be offended if we offered to lend her a dress for Thursday? And Meg is just, she blushes. She's agitated. She's mortified, angry, disgusted. Yeah. What, what do you make of this moment? I was thinking early, like when she gets the flowers, there's a moment where they're all teasing her of being like, ooh, Meg has a lover. Meg's got a boyfriend. And she's like, no, no, no. He's our neighbor. We've grown up with him. He's a brother type and is trying to downplay that. But it seems like she's being very honest about that. And it's clear that none of them believe her or buy that this sort of friendship could exist, especially between what she's supposed to be 16 here, 17? 16, soon to be 17. Right. So that 16-year-olds of opposite genders could be friends and that these flowers could be received in the manner of friendship and that's it. What a horrifying moment to stand there and hear everybody gossiping about you and making all these assumptions about you that you know aren't true, but you also know that the more you try to protest them, the worse your case is going to get. The more she insists that Lori is not her boyfriend, the less they're going to believe her. I think what you were saying before about the damned if you do, damned if you don't-ness of this (laughs) chapter, where she can either either resolve to continue wearing the clothing and acting the way that they're all already judging her for or give in and let them all dress her up and make her this little toy and feel totally embarrassed and totally like an object of pity and she knows at this point that their intentions are not ones of true friendship and care and that there's nothing she can do about that that there's no way she can convince them not to pity her and it's so sad and I think it's something that feels like a very relatable human moment I truly don't know what I would do with that situation if there was a better choice I don't think so what Meg does is freak out and then go and cry all night in her own bed. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's an undertone here of the marches being seen as gold digging, being grasping little creeps, which is not favorable to anyone, not favorable to Marmy, just insult on insults. Yeah. And I think something that comes through here is till now she had lived happily as a child. So it's just this broader understanding that childhood is over. Marriage is going to happen now. I think Meg is definitely less trepidatious about that than Joe would be, for instance. Yeah. Though I think there was that moment, I remember that line when they're poking her about Lori and the flowers and she's saying, no, 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 he's just a friend. One of them makes a comment about, oh, it's because you're not out yet. You haven't made your debut. This is the naive, innocent idea of a girl who hasn't started thinking of marriage or you haven't made that cross into being a society woman yet, which is another insulting, pitying thing. That she's clearly like, wait a second, my world doesn't work like this. Why are you 
putting these values on me. Girls Meg's age were getting married at this point, but boys Lori's age weren't. Right. She gets to write Lori. He's a little boy. He's just a child. Whereas I am almost 17. Like they're the same age, but <laughs> literally being that age means something different for a boy and a girl. There's an understanding that Lori might enlist in the army when he comes of age. He might go to college, whereas Meg will be expected to marry soon. She's mortified. She's been humiliated in a very real way by all of these assumptions, this gossip, by just even the very real thing of going to a party or any kind of social gathering where other people have more money than you and are dressed better than you and you feel awkward and uncomfortable and out of place. And so she makes the quite reasonable decision on the next page saying that someone asks her what she's going to wear that night. And she says, oh, I'll wear my old white one. I have to mend it first. It got torn last night. And so someone very reasonably says, I'll lend you mine, right? And Meg turns it down. The person insists, Meg accepts it and is rushed through this makeover sequence (laughs) (laughs) of getting dolled up, right? Makeup, dresses, jewelry, flowers, silks, high-heeled silk boots. She is just rushed through like a John Hughes 80s makeover sequence and like spit out into this dance. (laughs) And she says she felt as if her fun had really begun at last for the mirror had plainly told her that she was a little beauty. She has a moment of feeling really good about herself. And again, talking about relatable moments in femininity, there, you know, every once in a while, there is a moment, I think, if you have not experienced gender dysphoria, which to my knowledge, I have not. I assume I would know if I had, <laughs> where you look in the mirror and you're like feeling yourself. I mean, everyone's yeah, hopefully yeah. felt this way one way or the other, but yeah, when you get dressed up and you look at yourself and you're like, wait a second, I am a beautiful woman. That's amazing. That's such a cool thing to know about myself. I really feel bad for Meg in this chapter because- yeah. That moment, even if it comes out of these people who maybe don't have the best intentions for her or gossiping about her, who wouldn't love to be put in a little more expensive dress than they can afford and a little more makeup than they normally wear and look at themselves and be like, wait, I feel great. And she's smart. She knows that's not what life has to look like forever or isn't gonna ditch all of her values immediately to go try to be like this. But I hate that even the idea of one night of this immediately has to be, you're a slut, you look ridiculous, you shouldn't want this, you're bringing shame on your family, you should feel bad about what you've done. (laughs) Because as soon as that initial moment of knowing that you look beautiful and feeling yourself is over, the first words out of her mouth after that are, oh, I'm afraid to go down. I feel so queer and stiff and half-dressed. Immediately, she's tearing herself down. She goes into the party. She notices she's getting a lot of attention from boys, from society people asking who she is. She starts to feel, she's exulting in this attention, but she's also starting to feel, well, the queer feeling did not pass away. She has an ache from the corset. The train is getting under her feet. She's worried that the earrings are going to fall off. So she's sort of uneasily moving through the party in this fashion. And then Lori shows up. Yeah. (laughs) And this is not Lori's finest moment. I'm just going to say it. No, no, you're right. It felt like such whiplash from the flowers, from this beautiful little gesture of, hey, go have fun this week. Here's some things that are going to make you look pretty to suddenly being there, seemingly only to shame her. Forget what was made explicit about this, but she did not go to this knowing that Lori was going to be there. Was that the original plan that he was also going to be 
present this week? No. In fact, the Moffats invited Lori. Right. And so then again, a very, oh, that's so, that's such a bitchy move. We're going to put you in the room with the guy that we think is your crush and make you kiss. (laughs) Oh, that's so mean. Did you plan on just showing up and being mean? What did you think was going to happen? I think a more generous reading, and I I can't a hundred percent get, even get behind this, but I think we could maybe read this as Lori being a bit jealous of how feminine Meg gets to be. Interesting. Right? Yeah. Like at one point he says, I'm quite afraid of you. There's an actual intimidation, almost an inadequacy that we see. And yeah, for all the rude remarks he makes about Meg later on, we get Lori looking down at the little blue boots, which he evidently approved of. Like, <laughs> obviously this association with the flowers and the bouquets and da, da, da. we know that Lori enjoys feminine things and likes to play with girls and doesn't really enjoy the company of boys all that much. So you can almost read, almost read it as like, Lori wants to be Meg. Yeah. I also think something you said before about this being a space where gender and class are collapsing Mm -hmm. into this one. Yeah massive thing and feeling that this is Laurie often playing the role that his family is richer and gets to be a benefactor of the marches and gets to be very generous towards this whole family and then showing up and seeing that other people have started playing that role that someone else gave her a dress and gave her these silk boots and playing this. I wonder if that is an element of the jealousy there. Yeah. And that just manifests as disapproval that like, wait a second, I thought I was the one that gets to make these sisters feel special and beautiful. And now you're doing this without me. Mm -hmm. And I don't like that. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think there's a dimension too, in his role as a benefactor, the Lawrences are old money, Boston Brahmins, whereas the Moffats, it's it's implied a kind of nouveau riche. Yes. (laughs) So part of this is just Laurie thinking they're tacky. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. To combine it too, if we're reading Laurie as somewhat trans feminine or someone who is very comfortable around girls in a way that he is not around boys, the money and being a benefactor grants him that access, right? I can give you flowers, so then I can come over and, and play with the flowers with you. I can give you these things so I can also participate in you using them. And so then now other people are facilitating this femininity for you. And now I can no longer touch it. And yeah. that feels threatening. I am afraid of you in the way that somehow you have surpassed me in all of these things. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, <laughs> getting into the whiplash, Lori comes and apologizes and then they have a dance and make peace but then Meg goes off and drinks and is slutty and yeah (laughs) (laughs) what is happening what's happening and then she's immediately like whatever you do like don't tell my family I want to tell them but don't tell them that I drank champagne you know was this way when also it feels like everyone's expectation with her leaving was that she was gonna do this that's what they were excited about (laughs) (laughs) It's one of the first moments where actual sex starts to creep in around the edges. One person, Major Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, can't be, but (laughs) (laughs) Major Lincoln passes by and says, 
they are making a fool of that little girl. I wanted you to see her, but they have spoiled her entirely. She's nothing but a doll tonight. Feels like 19th century for whore slut. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it, just... it feels like a way that you can call yeah. a child a whore yeah. because she's still a child. Yeah. But it's a very, and I get that, right? It's suddenly everybody else here sees what's going on. But then that's also weird because this guy, Major Lincoln, you're also at this party with all yeah. these people wearing all these things like he absolutely would have been like what is she doing here wearing that torn mended old cotton dress exactly she can't win she can't win she can't win (laughs) and meg is modest and she's aware of how low cut the dress is Lori actually when meg is saying take care you don't trip on my skirt Lori says pin it around your neck and then it will be useful which is saying your dress is too low cut like oh my god (laughs) I know (laughs) this is just nasty oh my god yeah everyone's so mean it's just so funny how the beginning of this chapter everyone was so excited and so thrilled for Meg and now it suddenly seems like everybody is trying to be like I told you so or how dare you do this and there was no warning at the beginning yeah, absolutely um, miserable then, for me. Uh, I forget how long she's supposed to be there, but pretty soon in the chapter, she goes back, right? And mm-hmm. is just like, oh, it was the worst. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, so yeah, she she comes home and is like, oh, home is a nice place, even though it's not as splendid. She initially is like very, I had a great time. It was fabulous. And then once Amy and Beth, one the younger the younger girls have yeah. gone to bed, she, she's like, Marmy, I have to confess. I drank champagne. I flirted. Oh, I drank <laughs> champagne and romped and tried to flirt and was altogether abominable. Oh no, romping. How dare you? Romping, <laughs> romping in a way that scandalized Lori. <sighs> my God, we all have that internal shame that we carry from our families, our friends, whatever sense of no one has to tell us to feel ashamed. We just do it to ourselves. And it feels like such a wild example of that where no one, I mean, Lori, once she got there, but no one was saying to her, I don't know, Meg, this seems No, there was like one, I think at the very beginning, I noted that Joe said something like poor people shouldn't do this. Oh yeah. yeah, Let me get that. But, but you know, that's like the only time and it's Joe. So it's like, of course she's being snarky about this, but like no one else in her family is telling her, I don't know. I think you're making a mistake. I think this is going to be worse. They're all going to be like, you're going to have the greatest time. Take all of our jewelry, have so much fun. This is going to be amazing. Lori does it and whatever, but she does it to herself. She really does a lot of this to herself. Yeah. Well, technically Alcott is doing it to her. (laughs) No, exactly. But I think that this is this real, yeah. If we're talking about, this is how Alcott feels about femininity. Mm -hmm. It's so clear how much they're wrestling with understanding that this can be joyful for some people and understanding that this can and should be joyful for this specific character. And then also being like, no, 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 This is not good or right. Or, you know, I I cannot let an entire chapter pass where someone just has a nice time being a woman. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I simply must do something about this. Yeah. No, and it's worth mentioning too, Lou Alcott is on the record as someone saying, I have fallen in love in my life with ever so many pretty girls and never once the least bit with any man. And I think maybe some of that is coming through here. And the thing of like, when you're attracted to women, but you're really ill at ease performing femininity. Yeah. And you just do not know what to do with these feelings. You're like, that's so fun. That's so great. But like, oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Oh my God. I feel like the number of people who, before they right, figured out their own queerness, mm-hmm. who like, oh, I thought I was a gay man, but it turns out that I'm a lesbian because yeah. it's like, that's where these energies were like conflicting. <laughs> no, no, no. I, it's like, I'm, I'm attracted to women because like I am one mm-hmm. rather than not attracted to femininity because I don't want it or like some, you yeah. know, just this yeah. whole mess. And that really feels like an aspect of what's going on here. If we want to be as generous as possible to Lou Alcott writing this chapter, at least some of it is an effort to figure all that stuff out without any of the vocabulary or like understanding of these concepts. But right, some of it is just your garden variety misogyny. (laughs) Just a real anybody who likes these trappings is inherently less serious. Femininity is not serious. And I value seriousness and morality and education. And these are things that are incompatible with bows and silks and lipstick. And importantly, this final thing, it's not just a conversation between Marmy and Meg. Joe is just bird wheeling it. Yeah, <laughs> and, and subject to this lecture about femininity and virtue and a really interesting passage here where Joe felt as if during that fortnight, her sister had grown up amazingly and was drifting away from her into a world where she could not follow. And my annotated little women interprets this as being about childhood and adulthood. But I honestly, I think it's about womanhood. Yeah. Like, I think womanhood is the world into which Joe can't follow Meg. Right. I mean, and and certainly adulthood, but also, <laughs> right, that doesn't necessarily make sense because adulthood comes for you, right? Yeah. Unless something happens. Joe, she's a year behind. She's going to yeah. turn into an adult no matter what. But you're right. I think womanhood is one of those things. And whether that was intended as meaning womanhood as the sense of gender identity and expression, or whether that was womanhood in the sense of society or what specific place in society she's going to hold. I mean, it's sort of all these things. But yeah, I I remember that bit and feeling very much like almost if, if we're talking about Alcott looking at femininity and trying to figure it out and not being able to help being misogynistic about it. It feels like that sentiment of like, I can't go there. That is a place where I am both not allowing myself and fundamentally do not feel allowed. Yeah. And in in a very real sense, I think can. I look at photos (laughs) from high school where I was trying to do femininity and thinking I was killing it. And I'm like, you look like, (laughs) you look like (laughs) it's just not clicking. I'm trying to imitate what other people are doing. And it's, it's not an expression of anything from within myself. Right. And yeah. Yeah, I think in a, in a very real sense, Joe was just feeling all of that conflict. And then we have barely had time to process any of that before we're getting a lecture from Marmy about marriage and not being an unmaidenly girl. <laughs> <laughs> No, it really, it really feels like everything was packed into this last page or so, where it was just yeah. like, we got to get all the lessons in right now. <laughs> and the speech is so weird. It's so weird because it's kind of simultaneously an expression of lose anti-marriage, only marry wisely, be very careful ideology with, oh, the best thing in the world is to be chosen by a man. <laughs> Yeah. Ah, to be a girl, to be flirting for the first time, doing these things that you can be almost very wistful of. Yeah. Yeah. It it did not feel quite like it was coming organically from these characters. It felt like all of a sudden Marmy has the voice of eight different people. And it's like... 
<laughs> yeah, this whole thing is a doozy. Meg says, poor girls don't stand any chance unless they put themselves forward, which has to mean putting out. <laughs> yeah, or just right, is be- being somehow too vulgar about what they yeah. want and to, yeah. <laughs> and Joe's stout reply is, then we'll be old maids. Great. <laughs> yeah, Marmy has just given them a lecture about like, even Joe, one day you will be loved and chosen by a good man. It's the best and sweetest thing. And Joe's like, oh, I could be an old maid. Like that's always also an option. That's also on the table. To what you said about Marmy being eight different people, Marmy replies, right, Joe, better be a happy old maid than unhappy wives or unmaidenly girls. Like it's just... <laughs> immediately taking back everything she's just said. Right. And I guess the idea of marry well, right to marry. I certainly heard Marmy as talking a lot about don't get married just to get married. Get married because you want to, because somehow this sets you up better than you were before. I see how those reconcile because it's like, if you do not think that you are going to be better than you were before, turn into an old maid if that's truly how you think it's it's the best it's going to be. But right, she's she's just going on and on about how this is the best thing in life and (laughs) and the best thing, an incredible thing to aspire to. So (laughs) it's a mess. It's a real absolute mess. It ends on, we hope that our daughters, whether married or single, will be the pride and comfort of our lives. And both cry, we will, Marmy, we will. It's just as if anything coherent has just happened. Yeah. Yeah. No, no no one has resolved to do or not do anything except Meg has apparently resolved to never go to a party again. And (laughs) this is... (laughs) Yeah. I think... Number one, don't be unmaidenly. (laughs) Number two, I'm not sure we learned anything other than that. Yeah, yeah, truly. Never go to Boston. I don't know. Never go to Boston. (laughs) Yeah, it truly feels like this very like, and that's why you never want anything. And (laughs) it's like the end of this. (laughs) I'm not allowed to desire things. No, no, no. (laughs) It's really interesting. One of the primary source documents I have enjoyed most in kind of my reading about the Alcotts was a journal of May Alcott, who was the real life Amy. She has this journal that she kept during a summer where she was in some seaside resort town with a bunch of friends, just having the absolute time of her life flirting with 10 different boys. And it's fascinating to read this and then think about that and how easy and untroubled that was for her, how much pure enjoyment she got out of it. She talked about having a talent for flirting. And like really taking pride in being able to do that and be just friends with with all these different young men and women and flirt up a storm. And it's a very different and untroubled experience of womanhood than what we're getting here. Yeah. Thank you for talking through all this with me. Yeah. Oh my God. No, this was so much fun. And I I loved learning all the backstory of what was going on here. So much going on in this chapter. (laughs) This is really fun. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you for helping me attempt to untangle it. I think we got somewhere. (laughs) Um, We got somewhere. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. So Jaya, where would you like to be found? Where can people find you? Uh, Well, people can find me on Twitter at Jaya Sachs, J-A-Y-A-S-A-X. You can also read eater.com. My work is on there a lot. Fabulous. Yeah. You'll want to check out Jaya's work on Eater. Recently, she broke an important story about labor problems at Amy's. Yes. Which is a very important story, not least of all, because it let me know that Amy's and Annie's are different companies. Oh my God. Everybody has texted me being like, wait a second. That's my favorite Mac and cheese. And I'm like, that's Annie's. That's a different company. (laughs) Annie's is chill. You can still eat Annie's. Still eat Annie's, just not the the frozen burritos for now until they get a union. (laughs) 
Okay. And I am Peyton Thomas. You can get my book, Both Sides Now, wherever books are sold. You can get it at your library. We love libraries. I'm taking a break from Twitter, perhaps a permanent break due to the Elon Musk thing. Very fair. (laughs) We'll see how it goes if he winds up not making the purchase, which he might because he signed a non-disparagement clause and then immediately started disparaging (laughs) Twitter. So who knows what's going to happen there. I'm off Twitter for the time being, but my website is peytonthomas.ca. I'm posting all my new work there and you can find me and get in touch with me there. All right. Well, Jaya, thank you so much for stopping by. It has been an absolute pleasure. Yay. Thank you Um, for having me, Peyton. This was lovely. Thank you. Yay. Yay.